You may be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we lift up to you this morning so many cares. We pray, Father, this morning uh, for the Gambia. And, and we pray, Father, for the missions, uh, the, the movement of your gospel that is taking place there, that needs to take place there. Father, we pray in particular for the, uh, the inner regions of the Gambia, uh, the regions away from the coast that are predominantly Muslim and, and the tremendous needs for your gospel there, uh, the financial support that is needed for those churches and those pastors in those regions. Uh, we pray that you would sustain them, that you would support them by the good of your church and by your gracious hand. We pray, Father, for um, some of the, the different people groups there that particularly are in need of your good news for the Mandinka who um, are so thoroughly Muslim that it's, it, it is a, a trial for anyone to convert to following Christ. They're considered traitors and outlaws to their family. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen those brothers and sisters who have courageously decided to follow Jesus at great personal cost, that you would give them as you promised brothers and fathers and mothers and sisters in this life, even if with persecutions. We pray, Father, that they would be bold to continue to share the good news that is in their heart. We pray, Father, for the Funlai, and thank you that um, there's been a response to the Christian faith in that community. We pray that it would continue and it would spread and that you would give ministry leaders creativity and reach in their unique culture. We pray, Father, for the Jola, who are animistic and uh, are, are enslaved to the idols that they have produced by their own minds and their hearts and hands, and yet are also being persuaded to Islam. We pray, Father, for the powerful word of your gospel to overtake their hearts. Father, we uh, thank you for the, what we believe to be good news this weekend of uh, some sort of resolution in these debt ceiling negotiations. We pray, Father, for wisdom um, on, on the part of, in particular, our Senate Majority Leader and our uh, Speaker of the House and our President, but all their aides and staff as well as they negotiate details. Uh, that they would take a wise course to benefit uh, the people of this nation. Father, we pray uh, for Dr. Warren Morgan uh, as he comes in to take over as CEO of the, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. We pray that you would smooth his transition. We pray that um, I, I don't know what his faith is, Father, but I pray that for the sake and good of Cleveland, that you would give him wisdom to build up these schools to be a place that is safe, where it is healthy, where children can flourish, where teachers can thrive um, in their academic pursuits and be excellent at their jobs. We pray, Father, uh, 
for the family of, of Todd Morgan, and we pray for the Cleveland State University family, and uh, those who are impacted by his uh, tragic murder, and we pray, Father, that they would find a hope that goes beyond this life, but the eternal life that you offer in Jesus Christ. And finally, Father, we pray for those families and friends who are mourning today, those who uh, died in combat and service of our country, that you would comfort them with an eternal comfort. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We turn with me to the book of Titus. That's uh, toward the back of your New Testament. And if you're not sure where that's at, you can look in a table of contents. That's fair. Um, or just click, swipe, tap, do what you do to get the book of Titus. In the back, um, by the front door, we have these yellow cards. This is a list of the uh, sermons that are coming up uh, for the summer. On one side, it has them by series, and on the other side, it just has them by date. So we encourage you to check those out. Um, we want you to read. We want you to read your Bibles when you're not here with us. And uh, ultimately, anything I say, or Zach, or Ryan, or Caleb Weaver, or whoever else is preaching over this few months, uh, check that it's coming from God's Word and, and not our hearts. That's, that's our ultimate goal. So you'll see what's coming up, and, and what's coming up right now is we are starting a series in the book of Titus this morning after uh, the better part of 40 weeks being in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning. It's a very short passage. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith. The uh, headlines have been pretty shocking. In just the last month, all sorts of churches and so-called churches have been in the news for all sorts of salacious reasons. Uh, a report by the Illinois Attorney General found over 1,900 minors had been abused by Roman Catholic priests over the last seven decades. A 60 Minutes piece highlighted allegations that the Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had hidden billions of dollars and abused tax exemption codes. A Bible church pastor in Oregon was convicted of sexual abuse against, his, against a girl in his church against the backdrop of six additional accusers. A vineyard church pastor in California uh, is accused of abusing staff with unreasonable demands like salvation quotas of three conversions per hour. Hillsong was back in the news because of a recent docu-series and their former celebrity pastor trying to claim that although he had a sexual relationship based on manipulated intimacy with another church member, it was not abuse. A Minnesota pastor married his son's ex-wife. 
There have been numerous headlines regarding the still messy divorce of the United Methodist Church over the support or rejection of homosexual practice. And these are just a few headlines from May in America. And it's no wonder that church attendance is in decline. It's no wonder people are suspicious of organized religion. But despite that, the Surgeon General of the United States warned just a couple weeks ago about the health dangers facing Americans from isolation and loneliness, noting that part of that might be the declining church attendance. Maybe spiritually unhealthy churches are making physically unhealthy people. Of course, if they're doing that, they're also making spiritually unhealthy people. Is that what the church is? Is that what the church is supposed to be? Or has something gone wrong? There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect Christians. I want to disabuse you of that notion. Churches are hospitals. And Christians are patients. And, and we have come to find a doctor who is skilled to heal. And at our best, we're patients just trying to get better. We're trying to get healthy. And that's what this series in Titus is about. That's what this sermon is about. It's about setting up churches and, and the Christians who make them up to thrive, to flourish, to get healthy. Churches matter. And a church, no matter its size in numbers, is no small thing. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul sets out the priorities of his ministry as a model to encourage a ministry partner named Titus and the churches and leaders that he works with for them to emulate. Paul's priorities are a model to emulate. But since this is the first sermon in the series, let me give you just a little bit of background on this letter. And uh, Jonah, would you do me a favor and grab me a cup of water? I'm going to, I can tell I'm going to eat it this morning. Thank you. This letter is from Paul. That's his Latin name. He was a Roman citizen in the first century. But a bit unusually for the time, he was also a Jew. And among Jewish communities, he would have gone by Saul. And, and he was born and raised in Tarsus, a city near the eastern Mediterranean coast of Turkey. And he was educated as a rabbi under one of the most prominent Jewish thinkers of the day, a guy named Gamaliel. He was incensed, Paul that is, was incensed by this early Christian movement. And he oversaw the murder and imprisonment of numerous Christians until he met Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to Paul while he was en route to persecute Christians in the city of Damascus. And seeing Jesus enthroned in heaven made him realize that although he thought he had been serving the Lord, he had been wrong. Jesus was Lord, not the God of Paul's warped heart. Paul was commanded to preach the good news that Jesus was king and that he was bringing salvation to his people. And so that's what Paul did for the next 
30 or so years of his life, he traveled across the Roman Empire from city to city to city, making Jesus known. A shock to those who had known him before that encounter with Jesus. Significant parts of Paul's life and ministry can be found in the book of Acts in the New Testament, and others can be kind of pieced together through the 13 letters that he wrote that have become part of our New Testament, and Titus is one of those letters. Based on those facts, we can suss out from other books, Paul probably wrote this letter a little before A.D. 65, after he had been imprisoned in Rome for following Jesus. Paul is writing to Titus, a man that's been mentioned several other times by Paul. He was clearly a trusted ministry partner, and he's on Crete, a Mediterranean island that's floating about halfway between Israel and Sicily. And Paul has sent him there to help the churches on that island. We don't know when those churches were started. One conjecture, and this is the the tradition held by the Eastern Orthodox-affiliated Church of Crete, their tradition is that the first Christian communities on Crete were started by Paul himself during his very brief layover while he was being transported as prisoner to Rome. We can't be sure about that tradition, but two things do seem sure. Paul deeply cared about the health of these churches. And second, Paul was convinced that Titus was the man for the job. And in this letter of encouragement uh, and reminder, that's what this is. It's a letter of encouragement and reminder of the things that, that Paul had certainly taught and that Paul and Titus had discussed over many years of ministry together. And Paul holds up his ministry priorities as a model for Titus to emulate. There are three priorities that Paul wants Titus to emulate. But before we talk about those priorities, we also need to understand that for Paul, those priorities flowed out of his calling which really, for him, became very much his identity. Those priorities weren't unique to his calling. It's not that other people can't have these priorities. That's why he's insisting on them to Titus and to the churches that Titus is going to be speaking to. But they were essential to Paul. Paul describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle. He was a bit different than most of the other well-known apostles because he was called to be an apostle after Jesus ascended to heaven. An apostle is literally a sent one, a sent person. And in the ancient world, it was used to refer to someone who carried the voice of the person who sent him. They were spokespersons. They were envoys. They were ambassadors. If a king sent an apostle to another land to conduct business, then people could be assured that the apostle spoke faithfully for the king. And business with the apostle was as good as business with the king. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ because the resurrected Jesus Christ sent him to preach the Christian message to the nations, primarily to non-Jewish people. 
And that was probably a big part of Paul's own humility check, as he had been a very proud Jewish Pharisee in his earlier years, likely believing that non-Jews were dirty, defiling, and an affront to God. There weren't many apostles, so it meant that Paul was kind of a big deal within this circle, but let's be real, the Christian circle was very small at the time. He carried authority, the authority of Jesus himself, and he usually opened his letters by reminding his readers he was an apostle. But this time, Paul places being an apostle as sort of a clarification or an extension of the fact that he was a servant of God. That's probably too weak of a term. So we might think of a servant, we might think of a, a well-paid and prestigious butler. Or we might think of a Fortune 500 CEO who extols the virtues of servant leadership. But a better translation of the word into English, and it comes with some baggage, but it's closer to the original idea, is the translation slave. Now, slavery might have been slightly more dignified in ancient Rome than it was in old America, but it wasn't glamorous. A slave was a nobody. A slave was owned. One theologian has described slavery this way. Human autonomy is set aside and an alien will takes precedence of one's own. That's total ownership, total control. And that's what Paul says he was to God, totally owned, totally given over to. Not my will, but yours be done. In that way, what might seem like an important or glorious title, like apostle, has to first be understood as merely an extension of Paul's slavery. It is a unique way in which Paul lives out his slavery. And you know, apostle may sound important, but it was a title that, as Titus knew very well, led Paul to being beaten, stripped naked, stoned, imprisoned, and variously insulted and assaulted. So we might read more glory into the term apostle than they would have. So even as Paul exercises his apostolic authority to instruct Titus and to instruct the churches on Crete. He does so from the position of being a slave. Not a helper, not a friend, not even a servant, but a slave. And there's no ego in a word like slave. Titus was not an apostle. The Christians on Crete we're not apostles. I am not an apostle. But if Paul was a slave of God, then none of us can aspire any higher than that. I am a slave of God. And could it be that Paul emphasizes 
The fact that he is a slave because Titus is going to desperately need to remember that he himself is no more than a slave of God in order to lead and to care for these churches as well? I think so. Churches desperately need these people today. We don't need servant leaders as much as we need slaves of a good and great master. A slave only thinks of his master's goals, his master's good, his master's priorities. What happens in churches? Too often we we exalt and we lift up men and women who are great speakers, flashy dressers, successful in business, who have a lot of followers on social media. But you know who the Apostle Paul was in his day? An absolute nobody. He was sometimes mocked for his public speaking abilities. He was sometimes naked, no flashy clothes. He was poor, not rich. If the Christian movement had died for some reason in the first or second or third century, we might not have any idea who he was because he just wasn't that significant in human terms. And I think if we're honest, we might suspect that many churches would be uncomfortable platforming a nobody like Paul. But if Titus wanted to have a real impact on Crete, and if any of us wants to have a real impact impact on this world, one that God notices, one that has eternal fruit, we have to start by being a slave. It's not about me. It's not about my bank account. It's not about my career because it's it's God who empowers me to work. It's not about my children because they are God's creation before their mind. It's not about my neighborhood because the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's about Him. If you want to make a true difference, recognize that your best move and your best place and your greatest identity is this, slave of God. Live and breathe and act alone for what God would have for you. And that brings us to the first priority of Paul's ministry. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Quite simply, Paul's priority, which as a slave of God, then because that's actually God's priority, right? Because the slave takes the master's priority and makes them his own. His first priority is that he serves the faith and knowledge of God's elect. Now, there's a lot packed into this handful of words, and I'll, and I'll try to move through it at a reasonable rate here. But Paul is referring to Christians when he, when he speaks about God's elect. It is a fundamental truth of Scripture that God calls and chooses followers for himself. As Jesus said in John 15, 10, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that language goes all the way back to to Exodus when, when God rescued Israel from Egypt and said, 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose the Israelites, and then they believed. They didn't believe until after they had seen God act. But they were chosen before they had seen those actions, weren't they? Now, this isn't a place or time or discussion for all those complicated theological discussions like predestination and free will. But I want us to remember that our standing before God starts with God. We don't deserve to stand where we stand. Our faith stands because of God. Now, Paul sees that his role as an apostolic slave is for the benefit of the saints, for the Christians, for the elect. Specifically, Paul says their faith and knowledge. Faith is simple enough, but at the risk of repeating myself for like the hundredth time, let me tell you this. We use in our culture the word faith to mean something like a strong belief without evidence, but that is not Christian faith. Christian faith is experiential and it's relational. When I say it's experiential, I mean it depends on an encounter with God an encounter with his promises, an encounter with his mighty deeds. That is evidence. It might not always be evidence that we can put through the rigors of the scientific method. Paul saw the risen Jesus on the way to Damascus. He couldn't prove that he saw Jesus to anyone else besides maybe those who had been there with the experience, the encounter, but he didn't change his entire life because of a feeling. He had a, a change of his entire life because he had an experience, an encounter with God. It was evidence to him. But Christian faith is also relational. It's not just belief, it's trust. Jesus has promised things, and I trust that he will be good to fulfill those things that he's promised. Jesus is trustworthy, so I trust him. I trust he can cleanse of sins. I trust he can save. I trust he will rescue me from the condemnation on the day of judgment. So, belief, trust, are part of this idea of Christian faith. And when Paul says his apostolic slavery is for the sake of the faith of God's elect, he's saying, I know God's got people out there. There are people that God is calling to himself, and I believe he's going to bring them to faith. I believe they will become followers of Jesus because God has called them his own. I think we Christians, if you are a Christian, we, we have a tendency to forget this, don't we? It's why we need reminders. God will save a people. God has called a people, and he will draw them to himself to save them. Paul traveled the world from Damascus to Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome to tell people about Jesus. He didn't do that because he enjoyed vacationing. He didn't do that because he wanted to give people better schools or hospitals. He didn't do that because he was bringing condemnation. 
He did it because he believed that out there were people who belonged to God, who were ready to believe, ready to trust in Jesus. He just needed to go. I'll say more on that in a moment, but can we acknowledge that outside those doors, or maybe the person sitting next to you, are people that God has called, and God does not fail. We might fail, but God does not. Let's believe that. Let's trust that God has said in his word, shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. I think we don't believe that sometimes. I know sometimes I don't. We don't believe that God has really elected a people to salvation. And so we don't think that our efforts to tell anyone anything about God will do anything but make us feel anxious or ostracized, or both. But if it's true, if it's really true, like Paul believed, like God said, then we should go and make disciples because the harvest is plentiful. Titus needed that priority, and so do we. But that priority doesn't end with people becoming followers of Jesus. Paul also sees that that priority is connected to knowledge. And that makes sense because Jesus himself said that we make disciples by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Paul's mission did not end with seeing people converted to the Christian faith, but it extended to their knowledge of the truth. That's a kind of a strange phrase when you think about it, knowledge of the truth, because there really isn't a such thing as knowledge of false things. The, the classic definition of knowledge is justified, true belief. Key word being true. You can't know something that's false. No matter how hard you believe it or how much it just seems to work for you, if it's false, it's not knowledge. So why does Paul say knowledge of truth? I think as we, we get into this letter a bit, we're going to see that one of Paul's concerns here is that there's false teachers, perhaps both inside the church and outside the church. Bad influences that come from people who use the name Christian and from those who don't. And some of these teachers are probably claiming to have knowledge, maybe some spiritual special insights or keys to spiritual mysteries. They claim to have something that the regular Christian teachers didn't have. And so Paul is kind of showing his hand a little bit. He often does that at the beginning of his letters. He kind of shows his hand about where he's going. He knows there are some people out there peddling something called knowledge but it isn't really knowledge at all. True knowledge about God, however, true Christian knowledge accords with godliness, 
Another way to put that might be that true knowledge produces godliness. The Christian faith should produce new types of lives. It should produce lives that are growing in holiness, that are growing in righteousness. It's a process we call sanctification. Like I said, Christians are not perfect. We just know that we're sick and we need a doctor. But the doctor we've come to most definitely will set us on a road to recovery. So something about our lives should change if we're followers of Christ. One way to distinguish false teaching, false knowledge, is to look at what it produces and what it demands. And that's tricky sometimes because we can't, we can't solely base our judgment on external things. And yet, we aren't God. And so we can't see into a person's heart. But when a teaching seems to promote or glorify the love of money, or it leads to sexual licentiousness, or it normalizes the abuse of power, three that I think are particularly common in our world, and too often in our churches, then that should be something we step back and take note of. Paul is emphasizing the promotion of the kind of knowledge that leads to godliness. Good teaching, good knowledge, drives out bad teaching, bad knowledge. And that's going to be a key theme in this little letter. If we sum that up, we might say Paul's ministry priority here is the edification of the saints. First, to see them come to faith, and then to grow in true gospel knowledge that leads to changed lives. Lives that are marked by righteousness. Healthy churches have this priority. Healthy Christians have this priority. Healthy leaders like Titus will hopefully have this priority. They must have this priority in order to build the kinds of churches and Christians that God desires. Second, Paul says that his apostolic slavery is forward-looking because it's conducted in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. In a similar way that Christian faith is not evidence-less, or blind faith, as we sometimes call it. Christian hope is not merely wishful thinking. It is a confident expectation based on God's promises. There is a promise behind our hope. And that's why Paul describes this hope as promised before the ages began by God who never lies. But still, although it's confidently expected, and although it's grounded in completely, a completely trustworthy God who has never lied and never will lie, it's hope because we don't see it. We don't have it now, but we will. 
Eternal life means different things to different people, but here's what it means for Christians. We were created to live in harmony with God, and we blew it. Uh, the famous image that we have is of God kicking the first man and first woman out of paradise, the Garden of Eden, because they rebelled against him. But in a very meaningful sense, it wasn't that God kicked them out of the garden, but they had kicked God out of their lives first. And we have two. We seek to live our own way, by our own standards, in our own time, on our own terms. And it never had to be that way. We were promised life with God, enjoying His riches forever. If our first joy was not the things that God provided, but God Himself. But now that things are this way, God says, for that reason, we will face judgment. And in that judgment, we will die an eternal death. It's the just and fitting punishment for offending an infinitely gorgeous God. But God doesn't want us all to end that way. So he embarked on a rescue mission, a mission which he could somehow forgive our crimes while also maintaining his justice. And he accomplished that by taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus, living a perfect life, and then offering that life to die in the place of sinful human beings so that those who place their faith in Jesus and come to a knowledge of the truth, those priorities of Paul's ministry, they escape eternal death and they're brought back into the sphere of eternal life. If this world and, and, and this life is all there is, then, then the Christian message is next to worthless. It might provide you a little more stability in this life. It, it also might create a lot of instability in your life. Imagine you're a Muslim in Saudi Arabia converting to the Christian faith or an atheist in North Korea. That is not a move that will give you your best life now. It might get you ostracized from your family. It will most likely get you killed. Conducting his calling in the hope of eternal life meant that Paul was convinced that what he was doing mattered. It was worth it. It meant he could endure all types of abuses and hardships because he knew that this was a little snippet of what was to come. A number of years ago, a Christian pastor, Francis Chan, used a profound analogy I really liked, and he brought out on stage a rope, and holding up the end of the rope, just the tip, he explained that that's our lives. And we have a tendency to struggle and fight and bicker and cheat and steal and kill for this tiny scrap of rope. And we accumulate all kinds of goods to make our homes nicer and our educations better. But then he, he pulled the rope across the stage. It was probably a 100-foot rope, and, and it kept going and going and going. And, and, and while the rope was limited, because it's an analogy, the, the longer section represented that, that eternal life. And, and why do we worry so much about that first centimeter, that first millimeter of rope, 
instead of the rest of it that is so much longer that it doesn't even compare. Paul had his eyes fixed on the long end of the rope, the future of eternal life enjoyed with God. And all Christians need this sort of focus to live godly lives. And that's especially true, though, when when things God is calling us to do get hard, really hard, risky, even dangerous. When the manager asks you to massage the numbers, when you find out the office is billing insurance for procedures never done, when you feel intense peer pressure to compromise your values, when your spouse cheats on you, or even when that person, him, her, really needs to hear about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You know what makes that easier? When we're living for eternity instead of the end of the rope. We must keep our eyes out there. There's a third priority right there in verse 3. Uh, Paul sets up a contrast. God, God promised eternal life before the ages began. And, and that means that, that God's plan was not an afterthought, by the way. This was the plan from the beginning, from before the beginning, if we can speak that way, even before creation. And eternal life was explicitly promised in the garden. And after we, after we rebelled against God, the, the promise of eternal life was still held out to us. But how? How could sinners dwell with a holy God? Throughout the Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible that comes before Christ, this promise is held out that sinners can dwell with a holy God. But it remains a mystery how that could possibly be true, knowing everything we know about God, that he is just, and yet he's forgiving. How could God punish the guilty but still offer forgiveness? How could he give eternal life to those who deserve eternal death? But in his timing, God gave the answer to the riddle. He made the mysterious unmysterious. It was manifested in his word, Paul says. Sometimes when we speak of God's word, we we mean the Bible. But that's not what Paul means here. Very often, maybe even more often, God's word isn't the text on the printed page, per se. God's word is the message that he intends to communicate. It's the gospel. It's the good news that King Jesus has defeated death. He has satisfied God's justice by taking on himself the punishment his people deserved, and so he makes forgiveness possible. But like any message, it has to be communicated. So Paul says the message was made known through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, uh, by, by the command of God our Savior. When Paul speaks about the command that was given to him, I think he's thinking about that day, some three decades earlier, when he was 
traveling between Jerusalem and Damascus with letters from the high priest in Jerusalem authorizing him to imprison Jews who were following Jesus and calling Jesus Lord. And about noon that day, Paul relays the story this way in Acts chapter 26. He said, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And here's a freebie. With the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door. Actually, here's a twofer. Who commanded Saul to preach? In Acts 26, Paul says it's the Lord Jesus. In Titus 1, he says it was God our Savior. But also, if God is our Savior, then why is he called Jesus Savior in chapter 2 and 3 of the same letter? How many saviors are there, Mr. and Mrs. Jehovah's Witness? There's more in this letter for them. Just wait. So Paul had this command from Jesus, from God, from his Savior, to preach the message of God. That's how the message of how we can have forgiveness and a right relationship with God gets made known. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be preached. Preaching does not mean standing at a pulpit or in a street corner with a loud voice. It simply means lifting up our own voice and declaring, stating, making known this truth. That's what he's talking about. We're declaring it. And so in saying this, Paul is making clear that a priority of his apostolic slavery was preaching the message about Jesus. It was the only way the church could be built up. Like Paul wrote in Romans 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, although Paul was given a special commission to preach the gospel, it was special in its scope across the entire Roman Empire, and it was special in its authority. He was an apostle, but it was ordinary in the sense that he was a slave of God. Paul knew that the Strength and health and fate of the churches of Crete rested in communicating the true message of the good news about Jesus. And that's no less true of us, as, as Paul says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He knew that Titus 
was truly and assuredly part of this shared Christian faith. And so these priorities applied as much to him as they did to Paul. And if we are in this common faith, these priorities apply to us as much as they do to Paul. The strength and health and fate of the churches of America, the churches of Cleveland, even this church, rest in communicating the true message of the good news about Jesus. We must make him known, whoever we are, if we be slaves of God. These were the priorities of Paul's ministry, and they're rooted in his identity as God's slave, that he would edify God's people, their, their faith and knowledge, they would keep his eyes set on eternity, and he would preach the message of Jesus because churches matter. And over the next seven weeks, seven weeks, we're going to continue to unpack this letter, and we'll see the kinds of churches these priorities should produce. But Christian, with our eyes set on eternity, with commitment to God's people flourishing spiritually, let's make Jesus known. This week, this month, this sermon series, this life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have called us into relationship with you and you have made yourself known to us through the preaching of the good news. We thank you for the people you sent to preach to our ears that we might hear and that we might know and that we might believe and so be saved unto eternal life. And you did that for us. And we are eternally grateful to you. Would you by your spirit help us to recognize our identity of, as slaves of yours? And so adopt not what are just simply Paul's priorities, but what are really your priorities. For we will live to please you and in that find our own pleasure. Father, through that, would you build up this church and the churches of our city that you might be known, that you might be famous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.